this is Kristen Hedgecock. And I'm Ash Matson. You're listening to Apta Sophia, which means useful wisdom in the pursuit of biblical womanhood. This is episode four of Apta Sophia. I'm your host, Ash Matson. I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Hedgecock. Hey. And we are here with our very first guest, our very own Pastor Brant Bosserman here to talk about women in society. So the last uh, few episodes we've done have laid the foundation of a woman's role in the family and a woman's role in the church. And this week we are talking about a woman's role in society. And because things are going to get a little sticky, we decided to pull in Pastor Brandt and make him do the heavy lifting for us. Mansplain it for us. Mansplain. We need some mansplaining up in here. Deal. <laughs> but before we get into the meat of the episode, we always have to start with the most important thing. And that is this week's Would You Rather question. So with Pastor Brandt here being our honorable guest... I'm speaking too, too close to the microphone. I just got like you gripped, you just gripped my head. Okay, all right. Well, now that we got that over with, <laughs> here is our um, "Would you rather" for this week or for this episode, Pastor Brandt. Would you rather only be able to speak in rhyme or alliteration? I'm going to have to go with rhyme. I, I just think there's so many more uses that I could put rhyme to um, that would be helpful and fun and uh, enjoyable as opposed to alliteration. Like you could just rap all the time if you you could do rhyme. But alliteration, I almost feel as if you'd be making really annoying points all the time if everything were alliterated. Um, in a way that it wouldn't be, it'd be more annoyance than you could kind of get into the. the I feel like you poetry. and I have had this discussion. Yeah, we this have debate. Off, Maybe that's what offset. I was offset. offset. Okay, offset. Because the point you made is brilliant. Okay. I would be. I would immediately choose to be the most famous rapper on the planet. See, there you go. Yeah, you could rap battle anybody anywhere. And when you say choose to only, I mean, do you mean that I have a giftedness such that whatever comes out of my mouth mouth is in yeah. alliteration and, and coherent, or it's it's a rhyme and coherent? Because I'm definitely going rhyme then. I like to think with it's a superpower. Yeah. Because I would be sweating a lot more if I had to do either. Right. It would probably be good because I would speak a lot less, which is important. <laughs> I talk a lot and I get myself in a lot of trouble because I talk a lot. So if I had to think, I probably wouldn't talk. I do want to give some points to the alliteration superpower, though, because mm-hmm. I, I'm, I might suggest that's the more novel of the two. If I could make really good points in the course of sermons and arguments and debates that were thoroughly alliterated, I mean, my goodness, you would have to have such a command of the language to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and again, actually make coherent points in a way that, you know, rhyming, you can start to bend right. syllables or... Things like that enunciate certain letters or combinations differently, and and so there's a creativity there. But to re- to really alliterate, I assume you're you're suggesting I can't like change words and just throw a T at the beginning of a word that doesn't have a T to get something out there. But I'm right. actually using words in right. their pro- yeah. Well, that yeah. that really is amazing. I'll say that. And um, for that reason, it would be. So that's cool. the camp I fall into, yeah. alliteration, because I'm like, anybody can rhyme bat and cat and that, and mm-hmm. like, that's easy. Yeah. Oh, I do. Every rapper is like, it's oh, easy. Really, I don't understand why is they make that? so she's much money. She's ready for her first rap I'm battle, like, actually. She's ready. I'm so, mm-hmm. <laughs> only I can't rap at all. It's easy. 
Yeah, so there is a musical component for sure to rap, but this, yeah. But well, I, I think that rap. alliteration is a little bit harder because I'm like, you have to find a word that means the same thing, that makes sense in the sentence that begins with the same letter, and that is so much harder to Super do. Super hard. I will say this as well. <laughs> I assume when you say the rap gift or the rhyme gift doesn't mean that you rhyme the same word over and over again, which Kanye is absolutely notorious for. Oh, man. And it, it, it leads to the frustration of I one who grew up in the golden age of rap in the early 90s. Because Kanye does that. He does it a lot. That he'll say one word, maybe rhyme a different word, and then say the, the, the first word again, or even just write in a row. I'm like, Kanye, how do you get away with that? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. And People like, think he's a genius. I don't get it, Scott. I know. My husband loves listening he to would. his new. He would be and like, I'm like, he would be the guy that's like, he's a, he's a mastermind. Yes, he does. He I says need it. You and to I'm like, me later and tell me why he thinks that. Yeah. Next. I I'm like, his... I can't, you can't play this out. It's so good. I'm like, I'm sorry, Kanye, if you ever listen to this. I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be offensive, but he's going to listen. <laughs> Kanye West is going to listen to he our might. podcast. Yep. He might, you know, totally yeah, yeah, he might, but, um, Kristen, I just, I'll just say this. Yeah. I enjoy some of Kanye's music, but I, can't. I couldn't possibly put him in the same category as Tupac. I couldn't even put him in the same category as, to be honest with you, Bone Thugs and Harmony, which, um, overlooked greatness of, of the, of the era. Let me just put that out there. I have to send you a video from Kev on stage where somebody's trying to get him to speak in tongues. And he's like, just say, just say, what's up? just speak it out. And he goes, I don't know what to say. And then he goes, bo, 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 bo. Nice. And there you go. And he's like crying. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. When Kanye dropped his gospel album, I felt for every Christian hip hop artist that's just been grinding for years and years and has amazing music that nobody knows anything about. Yeah. Seriously. But I cannot like get past the idea of you potentially rapping all of your sermons mm -hmm. or doing it with mm -hmm. alliteration. Yeah. I would definitely sneak in behind you and try to drop a beat. There we go. <laughs> <while you're> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also V for Vendetta. That's the thing that came to mind with the alliteration. He was, I love that movie so much. Okay. And that first, um, with that first uh, scene where he meets Evie and he comes in and he does his whole spiel and everything he says starts with the letter V. And it's, it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also with an alliteration, like not every single word has to be like with the same. It's only like two or more. So that also no, is like, it is not, it is the definition. I Googled it. I appreciate the reference to yeah. the for Vendetta, but I will oh, confess to you that, uh, I cannot remember almost any remember of that. the movie at Good. all. Good, go back and Didn't watch it again. Didn't resonate. Okay, well. It's brilliant, especially right now. Okay. With everything that's going on for Even better. Right now. All right, okay. Yeah, and I didn't, sorry, my husband's, I'm driving him crazy because I'm way too close to the microphone. Sorry. Um, I uh, didn't realize how connected it was to 1984 <clears throat> until I watched it this last time because I had read the book. I guess I can appreciate the point except for that it strikes me as a little bit disingenuous because a, a major theme in it is the liberation of the same-sex attracted. And mm. to be frank, when that movie yeah. came out, um, it, we were already in the, z the zenith of, um, you know, 
all of the cultural tides changing. So it just didn't strike me quite as as bold, I think, as it was intended to be for, um, you know, this cause that's suppressed or something like that. I mean, to be honest with you, the, the 90s and it, it did plenty of heavy lifting for that cause in that movement so that I'm just... I'm not exactly struck by the um, the bold stances taken it in it, which I would expect if you're you're going to have a movie that's about this sort of you know liberation from oppressive things. It just seemed like pandering to what everybody already agreed right. with in the first place. So that always annoys me a bit, and so then my my brain sometimes turns off after that point. So yeah, mm-hmm. right. That part was hard, mm-hmm. and yeah, there were other parts too with the oppression of Islam and that sort of thing, um, but. I think there's enough good in that movie that I was able to spit out the bones. Not trying to hate. I mean, just some pretty big bones, but yeah. it was good going back and watching it. I hadn't seen it in a few years and yeah. Ryan was not as riveted as I wanted him to be. I kept being like, are you, are you mm. watching? <laughs> <laughs> um, but all right. So uh, that's it for this episode. But on our next episode, we're going to be talking about the following question. Would you rather be stuck in a broken down ski lift or would you rather be stuck in a broken down elevator? All right. So we're going to get into the episode now. We want to start just by talking a little bit about Pastor Brandt. Can you tell us about yourself? Where are you from? Are you born and raised Washington State? Yes. I'm a Washington native. Basically lived my whole life here in Washington State. Somehow managed to complete my many uh, post high school years in education in Washington state without having to move. So went to Northwest university, my undergraduate, which is an assemblies of God, broadly really evangelical university did my master's work through um, fuller theological seminary extension in Seattle, which, you know, I mean, it wouldn't have necessarily been my first choice, but I was pretty involved in uh, my church in the Northwest at the time and I managed to do my my PhD work through the Welsh University uh, of Bangor or Bangor University in uh, North Wales and spent most of my time in Seattle when my advisor would drive out here, <laughs> drive, excuse me, fly out here and then drive out here because he'd always be southward of me. And um, he he did the heavy lifting of, of moving around. And I only had to go to Wales for the very end of my, my PhD uh, yeah. labors. Cool. Cool. So what did you what did you get your degrees in? Yeah, so my undergraduate is a, a double major in biblical literature and religion and philosophy with minors in New Testament Greek and biblical language. And then um, my master's work was in uh, biblical studies and theology. And then my PhD work was in philosophy of religion. That's amazing. Um, how long have you been a minister? Yes, so I've been ordained since 2012. So I think that puts me at... Uh, Eight years here in 2020. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Kind of crazy, actually. Yeah. Yes. I I didn't realize how 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 short a time Trinus Toss had been planted before I came. Yeah. I think yeah you said eight years, so I'm a little over five years in now. So. Right. Yeah. Right. It's awesome to get in. Yeah. Get in on the <clears throat> ground floor. <laughs> and now we're growing. We're meeting in a boatyard right now. Yes. Or in a boat house. Is it called a boat house? I mean, it, it, it's like a it's like a boat factory. <laughs> boat, yeah. And for the longest time, we met in the parking lot of the boat building. Uh, I mean, it looks like a massive uh, barn almost, uh, maybe a little bigger than that warehouse. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that that's where we are. And it's it's been surprisingly amazing, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah. been really good. Especially in the summer. 
it yeah. felt pretty great to bust out some folding chairs. And I usually throw my kids in a wagon and walk them around the parking lot yes. when they're being fussy. <clears throat> but because of COVID regulations, we lost the buildings that we were <clears throat> renting out and we have had the privilege. How did you guys come to um, even find the boatyard? Yeah, fair question. So the owner or the the individual who's leasing it currently, um, he's been super involved in all sorts of different Christian nonprofit ministries, uh, particularly <clears throat> to AIDS orphans in Africa. Um, but and he's really headed up these ministries. So he's always been um, just a an advocate for all things, you know, Christ's kingdom, and has been more than willing and, and welcoming to to have us come out to the the boat factory and, and do our stuff there. So his name's Rob Smith, great guy. And, um, but what, what you said was true. The, the summer was more like, you know, romantic church under the mm-hmm. sun. And we had pretty much all warm, good Sundays. Yeah. Whereas now we are definitely passing into the more austere Puritan conventicle sort of worship, <laughs> uh, which, hey, true to our roots, yeah. but um, we'll see how fun it to, was and how fun it was when wasn't. you're really serious. That's yeah. when we know that, yeah, the really serious members are when you're willing to meet in the cold. That's right. Actually, it wasn't too bad last Sunday, I didn't think, <laughs> with the heaters. I mean, yeah, it was, I mean, you still had to wear a jacket and yeah. the things, but yeah. it was comfortable. I mean, I was not cold, yeah. I'll put it that way. Had a bunch of baptisms. Yeah, it was oh, yeah. really last great. Last weekend, too. Yeah. yeah. No, icicles too. were hanging off of no. babies' heads. No, no, that's yeah. good. We have a backlog of all these babies who have yeah. been born just before COVID, during COVID. And, you know, a lot of people were like, hey, I'll wait to baptize the kid until, you know, we're back in the building. I think people uh-huh. were thinking we might be back oh, in a normal church building right. for the first couple months. And then yeah. it's like, we're outside. Now it's it's downright cold. So yeah. there's something about, you know, getting three solid scoops of uh, of water <laughs> that's hard to keep warm on your head. Yeah. And, uh, we'll bring true. a crock pot. Yeah. Yeah. A little hot plate or something. something. Like I really that. do think someone needs to bring a thermos this, this uh, yeah. particular Sunday yeah. and we'll pour it in the bowl like halfway into the service because uh, it was it was cold last week and we have some younger kids. Yeah. Oh. It's going to get real <laughs> Traumatize cold. Traumatize them. Yeah. So yeah. when I got baptized, I was baptized in the middle of February in a horse trough outside. Ooh, that's hardcore. Yeah. Yeah. I was super serious about my baptism. Mm. At the church I was at before <laughs> this, uh, someone was baptized in the ocean in the winter. What? Mm-hmm. Up here? Multiple people. Up here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. All right. That's commitment, too. It, that's commitment, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Polar bear baptism. Awesome. And then, um, Pastor Brent, tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah. So my wife, Heather Bosserman, um, I met her when I was 20 at Northwest University, and um, she's an RN. So um, this, I mean, this will be totally relevant to everything we're talking about as, uh, you know, as I pursued beyond Northwest University some seven or eight more years of school. um, Heather definitely helped put me through, um, (laughs) put me through school in those years, Mm -hmm. or at least- um, help me do so without incurring the sort of student loan debt that one would naturally incur otherwise. Right. And um, I mean, at the same time, you know, I was still working and everything, but my point is my wife has been a huge blessing to me. And so currently she um, teaches my kids. Um, I have a small hand in that as the, uh, my two older girls who are both 11, I, I'm their math teacher um, Monday through Friday. 
Um, but everything else is otherwise Heather. And then my younger two boys, um, Augustine and Calvin. My girls' names are, are Nicaea and Chalcedon. And uh, my boys are Augustine and Calvin. And they're the younger of the two, of the four. Um, Heather does all of that. And so, um, and, she, and she works one day a week as a per diem nurse. So Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, you have the coolest kid names, I oh, think. Oh, man. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, we put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. definitely. <laughs> so that's good. Um, all right. So we had the privilege of actually going over to Kristen's house and picking your brain a little bit before this. So instead of just diving right into the um, questions that are specific to what a woman's role in society would be, we thought we would open with a few that are a little more general because you had so, so many good things to say that might um, take people a little bit further than what we've been able to say in the last few episodes. So the first question we have for you is, what is the best way for us to approach forming the definitions of masculine and feminine biblically? Yeah. Yeah, we did talk a lot about this, and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll jump right into it for people because this is actually um, something that I think many will find surprising when I say that um, offering a, uh, a perfect definition of, of male and female by, um, by any analysis of um, uh, attributes that are, you know, are combined together actually does us a great disservice because the truth is, is that the most basic distinctions that we deal with in reality and in life take us to things that are um, beyond definition precisely because they're the baseline, they're the basic distinctions that we have. So you take your, you know, your basic flavors. Um, we, we talk about you know, sweetness as opposed to bitterness and sourness and mm-hmm. uh, saltiness. You know, if, if someone were to ask you who lacked the, the sense of, of taste, how would you define sweetness? You ought to find yourself incapable of doing that. All that you could really do is, is note the many places and conditions and fruits and, and, and dishes in which sweetness appears. Because sweetness is a, a, you know, a basic sort of experience that one encounters. And so, you know, the thing you'd be inclined to say if someone said define sweetness, you'd be like, well, you know, it tastes like strawberries. Or you'd be like, oh, you know, it tastes like a you know, really ripe apple or something. And in fact, that would actually all be mistaken. You know, strawberries taste sweet. Apples mm-hmm. taste sweet. And those, those different fruits are a nuance on that basic flavor. Um, but in fact, the best way to, to go about defining and even describing in, in robust ways um, basic flavors is often in contrast to others. And so it is honestly when it comes to, to male and female, um, you know, these are two basic sexes and distinctions that really lie at the heart of what it means to be human to, to, to really grasp and to understand and to appreciate those two things and how they interact together. And so to be honest, when you talk about something, again, we'll just go back to the analogy of sweetness, we would tend to contrast it with bitter. And uh, we, that would be a really helpful way to, to understand it better for someone who's tasted a bunch of different things. Well, the same is true when it comes to male and female. And so all that said, we can talk about you know, broad uh, qualities that accompany these two sexes, but we're, we're almost always going to go back to the other one to, 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 to really bring out the distinctness of, of the one sex. So for example, I mean, we can say broadly speaking, you know, that women are, are, are um, not as physically strong as, as men. Um, they're not as prone to risk-taking as men. Um, that most importantly, on the biblical data, there is a importance 
that women are prized and that women are guarded and women are protect, protected and um, that by men. Um, and so when we talk about maleness and what that means, it has a reference to, to woman. And when we talk about femaleness, it likewise has a reference to, to maleness and, and to man. And um, the thing about this is that when we, we fail to appreciate this distinction um, and the complementary nature of, of the relationship between the sexes, this really, really is deeply harmful to the human mind. Um, you think about a child, really, one of the most basic distinctions you ever enter the world with is that between your mother, who is able to feed you, to nurture you. You even have a natural sense of you know, smell and recognition for your mom. And then you have, you know, in distinction, you know, a father whose voice is generally going to be lower, who in the course of time, you know, you're going to see him doing distinct things in the home that, that um, you know, your, your mom is not, probably more of the heavy lifting, things like that. And my point is, is that this is a basic distinction, one of the most basic. And, you know, logic is all about being able to make distinctions and, and to relate different categories and things. But when you enter the world with those basic distinctions being confused, uh, you, you're bound to end up with um, great confusion about your purpose, <clears throat> your role, and even an inhibited ability to identify other basic distinctions in the world. Mm -hmm. And that sadly is kind of where we're at right now as, as a culture. Um, we're increasingly, you know, there's just grave confusion where up is down and right is left and justice is injustice and injustice is justice. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because we've, we've tampered with the basic distinctions between male and female. But all that said, to answer your question directly then, I think, you know, a robust description of femaleness has to do with, uh, as a generality, the, the female sex being one that is, has an inherent right to be cherished by, protected by, honored by, placed on a pedestal by uh, the male sex. And, and, and the male sex you can, you know, define in, in, um, in, in like terms by way of contrast. But that's the beautiful thing that is the dance that is humanity. There's no dance going on when the, that basic distinction of the, the need on the one part to lead and on the other part to, you know, with, with all of her strength um, and, and giftedness to follow. Uh, it's when we lose that that there, there really isn't a beautiful dance at all. And, and what Paul says, the opposite would be true. Paul says, you know, man is not independent of woman and woman is not independent of man um, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 arguably so much of what's going on today, whether it be, you know, third wave feminism or whether it be, you know, uh, transgenderism, it is fundamentally a, a statement to the effect that man is independent of woman. Woman is independent of man. A man can be all that a woman is and vice versa. Um, in which case it's really hard to say why we happen to have or should have or what value there is in having two sexes at all. So long-winded answer. Right. No, that's a wonderful answer. <clears throat> and that is something that we talked about <clears throat> in our first episode is that mm -hmm. um, especially when you get beyond scripture and you start adding things that aren't there, right. you you start running the risk of uh, making femininity or masculinity into a stereotype, which mm -hmm. just opens the door for someone to say, well, because I like to wear these types of clothes right. and because I like to engage in these hobbies, 
therefore I must be a woman. And I just didn't, you know, everything got mixed up. I have the wrong body. Right. Um, because I like to go and put on shoes with a heel in my mom's closet. Right. Right. So we'll see. And that's exactly the problem. See, when we don't recognize maleness and femaleness as, as basic distinctions, um, and what we, when we try to define maleness or femaleness in terms of externals or, again, habits or, you know, whatever it may be, that's exactly what creates the mentality that, that you know, is prevalent in transgenderism that if only I had different appendages on my body, mm-hmm. um, if only I wore different clothing or if only I enjoyed frequencing, you know, different recreational activities, well, then – by the conglomeration of those things, I would now be a female or I would now be a male. As opposed to in the biblical scheme going, um, your gender is disclosed to you in the most basic of ways. And it's it, it, ha- it has to do with the body that you've been given. And of course, you could define that in terms of um, genes and other things as well. But it's it's fairly easy for people to tell which one they are. And then to go, the the gender that accompanies that and that is tied to that is a calling from God to right. to be and to relate to the other sex in a specific <clears throat> way, um, you know, in, in, in the different capacities as a husband, a father, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, and a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a calling to pursue those things. It mm-hmm. It's not about what my natural preferences may be. It's not about whether I, I'm just a super strong woman who happens to be physically stronger than some percentage of men that that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not you have that basic flavor, you might say. Mm-hmm. And because um, there will be those differences, and this will come to bear when we talk about things like women in society and, you know, um, what we would call, you know, the norm and, you know, what we'd call um, acceptable, but, you know, different stations in life and you name it. So, yeah, we're ready to go, re- go there whenever you are. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think uh, people add to these definitions um, or create their own rules, their own laws, because mm-hmm. they're uncomfortable with the nuance. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of those people that's tempted to go that way usually in life, just generally. But I think instead of um, it being a danger of it being too open, because we're not being so rigid mm-hmm. as to say, here's the list of what it means to be feminine, and this is the list of what it means to be masculine in, in externals, um, it makes it a little bit easier for us to see nuance and even see where somebody might be slipping into sin or slipping into being self-deceived right sooner or maybe in a way that would fly under the radar because we didn't have those external signs right it really deals with the heart and that's right and and, and here's the thing I don't mean to downplay <clears throat> that there are objective things that are going to accompany your experience as a man or a woman and and frankly rightly so sometimes and sometimes wrongly so. Right. But, you know, we could put this out there that being as we are these basic flavors that have distinct relationship to one another, you know, part of what it means to be a woman is to recognize that regardless of how you present yourself or how you feel on the inside or what sort of gender you would like to identify with, regardless of any of that, God has designed mankind in such a way that you will draw out in, in, in normal circumstances from men, a sense of sisterhood and a sense of a daughterhood if it's an older man. Mm-hmm. And you're going to, you know, and, and, and even pursuit, you know, obviously, um, you know, from men as 
men and women have been made to to have an attraction to one one another by and large, even if people reject that or don't feel naturally inclined to that. But that is going to be part of your experience. And there are similar things, you know, with respect to being a man. There is still going to be an expectation of certain things from you um, in accordance with um, the, the distinct gifts that tend to prevail among men. And so, you know, I just think the other night, you know, my wife and another woman in her home school group were driving home late and, um, you know, they, they got a flat tire and had to pull into, uh, um, you know, grocery store parking lot. And so my wife calls me and she goes, you know, well, we just called AAA to, you know, come in. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, I'll come out and change the tire. And she's like, no, you know, we, call. but what was funny to me is that not, it didn't occur to either of them to, that we could go out and change the tire. And I don't mean to suggest that they couldn't have, <laughs> but I ended up coming out and changing the tire because AAA was going to be That's how super I changed late. tires too. Is, and my oil is Jiffy Lube. I know how to change yeah. all those things. I don't know how to get and, the, <laughs> and here's the thing. I would submit even in the most progressive societies that the, the, the same expectation is still there. And in fact, yeah. that's kind of one of the impossible places that <clears throat> sometimes you're in and as a man that you, on the one hand, you are to acknowledge no difference in terms of strength or d- just general skill set. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it is still very much expected of you. And, and it's the same thing with respect to women. I mean, again, we live in a society where on the one hand, there is this expectation very often that you should be a career woman, you name it, and all of these things. Mm-hmm. But there's still an unspoken assumption that you, sh- you should still be more agreeable than, mm-hmm. than men are. You should still be generally more pleasant. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to suggest that attempting to erase these general expectations, um, it's almost impossible. But what we've done is we've taken the added burden of attempting to suppress those <laughs> those inclinations, and it, it's really not pleasant for anybody. It's it's actually more of a burden for all of a society to pretend like these these things don't exist and that there isn't you know there aren't these these generalities that um, prevail among men and women. Yeah. So. Scam likely. Mr. Scam. All right. <clears throat> so um, we're going to jump into a more controversial question on the surface um, that I think is a good one to throw at you in particular. So <laughs> <laughs> this is something a lot of a lot of women um, ask and a lot of people sort of lord over women in a wrong way. So what does scripture mean when it identifies women as the weaker of the sexes? Is yeah. this a result of the fall or a part of God's original design? Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So to begin with, it's it's part of God's original design. And uh, I'll, I'll get into expanding why, why I would think that was the case. But I mean, first off, I think it would be pretty bizarre to suppose that there were two <laughs> Uh, physiologically totally equal uh, individuals that God made. And for some reason, woman fell harder so that she's physically less strong than men generally. I mean, that that just, that I, I guess I'd push that back on the other guys and say that might be the single most <clears throat> bizarre thing I've ever heard about the fall, um, that <laughs> that women were by it somehow made, you know, physically weaker than men. But on the front end, there's the physical strength aspect of it. And then Furthermore, there's just, again, uh, the strength that's involved in in risk-taking and what's generally associated with testosterone in general. I mean, the fact is, is, honestly, I'm sure these studies have all been condemned as, you know, hate studies now. But in general, young boys are going to engage in more risky behavior Mm -hmm. than women. And there's a sort of strength that accompanies that. And don't get me wrong, if misguided is going to be a grave weakness, you're going to become foolhardy and you're going to get yourself hurt and you name it. 
Um, but that is part of what's being spoken of there. And with that, therefore, there's also a greater tendency um, to, um, to combat. And I'm going to submit that at the end of the day, what lies at the base of you know biblical prohibitions for women to take on the office of, for example, um, overseer or elder, is precisely that that office is a combative office, that, that combat must be done. And that's going to shape how you view biblical <clears throat> office in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it even comes to bear, I would note and say like, you know, debates about women deacons. You know, I, I, I'll just say this, you know, in prepping for the PCA um, history class that I'm doing, you know, I'm just reading just ages and ages of, of you know, Protestant history where literally to be a pastor is to um, break the law, engage in, you know, um, worship services, lead worship services that are illegal, to be the first to be executed when you are found out, um, you, you know. Yep, go ahead. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Don't want that job. <laughs> yeah, well, see, that's what I mean. I, I actually think that we live in such a an age of, of, of um, uh, an insulated age. Mm, no yeah. one going into the ministry I would submit even most men have any idea that that sort of behavior, this sort of aggressive opposition is going to have to take place. I, I happen to think like mm-hmm. if if we lived in a world where that were an imminent possibility, mm-hmm. I just happen to think it wouldn't even be a debate anymore that the first person in the congregation who ought to be uh, to risk dying, being imprisoned, um, you know, I'm thinking about the killing time in, yeah. in Scotland when, um, you know, literally we're talking, I mean, I think they, they say something like 18,000, yeah. you know, Presbyterians, Presbyterians in Scotland, um, particularly, you know, covenanters who wouldn't go along with, um, you know, state um, measures, you know, in, in you'd say overreach over religion, 18,000 people die. And of course, a concentration of the clergy. Um I, I just think, you know, when you put it in those terms, most people would would perhaps even appreciate um, the, the, the biblical uh, commands and, and, and why they are the, the way that they are, rather than look for subtle ways to evade their force. Um, but, but that said, so I think that's what I mean when it comes to strength. And um, what this makes for, let me, let me say what I think this makes for. Um, when, as I understand, and you know, this isn't my realm of expertise, but when you look at um, the bell curve of scores for things like the SATs and different tests, like what you'll find is that <laughs> men are on both sides, like the lowest and, and often the highest. Um, and that, that on average, women will, will actually score higher. You know, you take that bell curve, they'll actually score higher on average, but men will be at the extremes. And, and you could look at this and go, um, I think that this, this is kind of that testosterone element. When a man finds out that he's really good at mathematics, there is an inclination to just do mathematics all day and to perhaps say to heck with everything else. Um, likewise, if a man finds out that he's not particularly good at that, but he's good with his hands and he can do various things, it's like, why would I waste any more of my time you know, investing in this academic thing, I, I might just do this other thing all day long. That sort of inclination to just uh, be laser focused on one thing, potentially um, to the exclusion of other things is, you know, not nearly so important. That's a difference between men and women generally. And the one 
you know, this capacity to multitask, I don't know, to have a, a podcast and be a mom of four children at the same time, um, you know, and to try, attempt to do those two things at once and, you know, also make dinner at the end of the day. I mean, that is a difference uh, between men and women. And, and here's the thing, they're both strengths in very meaningful ways. Right. But yes. if you're going to ask who's going to likely have a concentration of strength in one skill set, mm-hmm. um, Again, not to the total exclusion of the other, because part right. of being an administrator and a leader, and you name it, is to to balance all those things well. But I would just submit, in general, that you ought to expect for there to be a harder punch in almost any field that a man um, directs himself to than to women in general. And it's not to say there aren't going to be exceptionally gifted women in different things, right. but that goes back to a, a general difference between the sexes. And um, so I, I would say that those are the general sorts of strengths that come to mind mm-hmm. and that I think are relevant in that passage. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, do I see that in my kids in terms of school? Whew. Yeah. Boys and girls, totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my, I don't know if your boys are the same way or if you're, if you see this in your kids, but definitely see my boys are typically good in, in math particularly. And that's all. And they absolutely cannot stand writing. Don't understand why they have to do it. It's just a struggle, but they are yeah. done in math with math in like 10 minutes. They're just right. Right. But they're like, why do we have to? Oh, right. Yeah. Well, and see, here's the thing. I mean, this yeah. is this, this basic observation that we're making. Um, it's, it, it lies at the heart of it, it. I think it supplies the more coherent answer as to why history often tells us a great deal more mm-hmm. about male figures than female figures. Yeah. Uh, you know, if we're saying that, the harder punch in a given field or a given, you know, whatever it may be, aspect of life is oft, often comes from men because, you know, that, that's how they're wired. Yeah. Um, we ought to expect that, frankly, the worst criminals in history, the worst tyrants in history, and and also, the, the you know, the most valiant d- deliverers in human history are likely to be men. And, you know, this is where, the you know, the, the scheme tends to break, used to break down. It used to be that the only reason why women are not excelling in society is because, um, you know, they're not being allowed to, they're not being taught to, cultural expectation, you know, wouldn't invite them to. And, you know, I'll just say when I was in university courses in in the early 2000s, (laughs) this was a compelling point to make at the time. I'd always go, well, you never hear people say that we will have balanced out society not only when we have as many female senators as male senators or something, but also when our prison population is equally female as it is male. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, you, you, we should all ask ourselves, why is it that the male um, population, uh, it, you know, 10 to 1, you know, is, is in, uh, represent inmates as opposed to female? And again, it's it goes back to the harder punch thing. You know, mm-hmm. if someone's going to engage a life of criminality, <laughs> the idea that it would be more aggressively, violently, and consistently pursued by men than women goes back to that distinction between the sexes. And so I, I would just go, yes, sure. I mean, human history might be the sort of thing where we find significantly more male heroes, but that's only because we find significantly more male villains. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just the reality. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, it's that bell curve again, um, you know, we, we would we'd say they actually equal themselves out. And this is where I actually am I'm concerned about 
you know, feminism in general, it seems to me that they've swallowed the, the pill of Friedrich Nietzsche and in general um, uh, existentialism that they're actually frustrated that the most exciting characters, whether good or ill, were men. And really the aim is, and, and the idea of the good life is this sort of existentialist achievement of having been one of the most interesting characters, as if this is the criterion that uh, women should be chasing. Um, to begin with, being one of the most interesting characters doesn't mean necessarily being virtuous, good, or um, mm -hmm. praiseworthy at all. Yeah. Um, and I actually, what I'm concerned about is that I, I think our young women who are falling into that trap they're actually just, I hate to say it, they're, 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 they're falling into the trap of, of wanting to be Nietzsche's self-absorbed demon as opposed to uh, anything particularly glorious or good by Christian standards or in Christian terms. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's tragic, really. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, the fact of the matter is, is that when you look at male history, it is a tragic history from the fall and and Adam's um, blame shifting to um, you know Judas's betrayal of Jesus to mm -hmm. um, I mean there's 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 just one good man of them all really right and so um, yep but go ahead and we can move on if you want that's good um, so the next question would be how does our understanding of femininity um, or even the way that male and female interact together and complement each other, how does that inform the way that we view a woman's role in the home and in the church and in society? Um, and beyond that, do you have any encouragement in regards to the way that a woman's work in the home and in the church is impacting society before we even get into these more direct yeah. interactions in yeah, within society, being in the workforce mm -hmm. or being in yeah. civil government, that sort of thing? That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, to begin with, the idea that a man is going to use what strength he's been given by the Lord that is, you know, we'd even just say relatively, whether physically or whether it be a matter of focus and um, concentration, as we just, we talked about a moment ago, the way he's going to be use, using that um, is going to be shaped by the women in his household um, in the most remarkable ways. Um, you know, here's the thing, you, you could make the argument that every single war that was ever fought was a war fought by men for women, um, even though many of the men were scoundrels. I mean, the idea being that um, most men uh, can be compelled to fight if they believe that the women whom they love most and whom they would never ask to fight um, can be compelled to go to war if that's that's the, the, the terms set forth for them. Um, the idea that a woman uh, and, and women in general and your sisters and uh, your mother needs to, your protection and that she deserves it. She has an inherent right to it. That's the sort of thing that can only be be cultivated by a robust female figure in the home in most instances. You know, I don't want to limit the grace of God to to produce just as robust a view of, of women by his, you know, supernatural and special means. But that's the ordinary means. The idea that there is a mother country that's worth fighting for has everything to do mm. with your mother. Mm -hmm. The idea that there is, um, and, and I don't just want to put this in combative terms, the idea that there is um, 
you know, any society that you might call your motherland that is worth being industrious for, Mm -hmm. that is worth taking all of your energy and your labor that is wired to be focused and to to put it to something of of great use has everything to do with um, that, that individual. And you might say that, that sex that you're building everything for. I mean, I take, you know, Adam in the garden. Um, he's to take dominion over the earth. Um, he was told that before Eve was created. And of course, that dominion mandate extends to her. But I would just put it this way. That mandate is a more meaningful mandate when there are women to build something for and to build something with. And that's more of a meaningful mandate when there's something to build and to begin and a woman who is quite distinct from you to build upon it and to complete it and to beautify it. And um, so, so again, I think who doesn't have, you know, a soft spot for their mom? Um, this is, you're considered particularly sick and twisted if you don't have that for your mom. And we, you know, we have swear words that begin with mother that are particularly intense <laughs> Precisely because of that reason <laughs> that, that there's something, you know, particularly sacred and something particularly um, awesome about a mom. And when, when that is, is ruined, um, my goodness, you know, when there isn't that general sense about your mother in, in, in those terms, you know, you, you can rest assured that society is in a very, very, very dark place. So, all right, we'll get into the sticky questions now. Um, Titus 2, in Titus 2, we're told uh, that the older women are to uh, disciple the younger women and teaching them to be workers in the home. And so the first question that we wanted to ask you that is um, kind of a pretzel for some people is, is it permissible for a woman to be a member of the general workforce where her work is taking her outside physically, outside of the home? And if so, what is the best way for a woman to approach her work so that she can honor her biblical role in the family? Yeah. I hope this is a yes. Or else oh, yeah. His yeah. <laughs> yeah. wife and I are <laughs> yeah. be brought under church discipline right quickly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So here's the thing. You know, the, the, the sphere of the home is a sphere that, that <clears throat> women have in a special responsibility within. Mm-hmm. Um you know, this this goes back to, you know, the difference between the sexes and the general strengths of the two sexes. But the idea that, you know, especially in a society that, you know, is labor-based, I mean, I meant manual labor-based, um, it would be a particularly obvious that the one who's going to get more work done outside of the house is the one who is uh, even slightly physically stronger. I mean, obviously the differences between us are not so great that, you know, men can run, you know, uh, three minute, 50 second miles and, and women can only run 10 minute miles. That's really not what it is. Um, it's much closer than that, but it's sufficiently different that there's an obvious fruitfulness to have an economy where a man is, um, is the primary breadwinner. Um, that isn't to say that there aren't, you know, very distinct, you know, scenarios that people could have in a home or have in a house that would allow and be a perfectly pr- appropriate scenario for a woman to be out of the house more. I mean, here's here's the bottom line. A wealthy family in Paul's time um, 
who have multiple servants, which was just the world that they lived in, and it's it's uh, the world that the Old Testament scriptures were in. Um, there's no question about it. A woman would do less laundry in, in those circumstances. Paul can speak about a woman like Chloe in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and say, her people have informed me. Well, her people refer to people who, you know, belong to her household in the capacity of, of servants of the time. I, I sincerely doubt that Chloe was doing the same sort of in-home business that um, just manual upkeep that the vast majority of women in her time and in human history were. So mm -hmm. in that instance, yes, yeah, she would have a sort of mastery over her household, but through the mediation of male and female servants. And so we have female servants as well, um, you know, in the New Testament and, you know, some mentioned by name in, in Acts. And that was an occupation that they would have. And so you think about a female servant, I mean, let's just be really clear. She would be working outside of her own home. Um, it, that That's rather certain, you know, at least the home that she was perhaps born in, um, doing a certain, but she would be doing such as, you know, the member of another household and in a capacity that um, certainly agreed with her femininity. And so my, my point is, is that, yeah, Paul is speaking a, um, a, a general truth, um, but that doesn't, it doesn't negate the fact that there are different callings out there. For example, we also know that singleness is an appropriate calling that people may be called to. Well, a woman's role in her home would be very different if she was an older woman without a husband or even an older widow, as we'll read, you know, in First Timothy 5. Um, there, you know, these women seem to have a significantly greater function within the life of the church, and appropriately so. She's a widow. She doesn't, she doesn't you know, have a husband that she is um, either under his headship, which is a vulnerability, mm -hmm. um, but apparently she also doesn't have children that she's taking care of in that capacity as well. And it would be perfectly appropriate for her to be the, the more involved uh, in different aspects of the life of the church. And so I would compare it to the Pauline, um, you know, indication at the beginning of, of, of Titus, where it says it describes an elder as a one woman man. There we have a principle being spoken to by its most usual manifestation. The most usual way that a man is going to manifest fidelity um, faithfulness and going to manifest, you know, a positive valuation of women so that he's a one woman man, totally devoted to her is within the bonds of marriage. But Jesus is surely a one woman man. And, and anyone who, who doesn't get that he, he, he manifests the essence of that attribute has really gone off the rails somewhere. And of course, Paul, who at this point in his life, at least doesn't have a wife is surely a one woman man. Um, as well. And, and he's an elder, you know, as all the apostles were elders and, you know, Peter and, and, and John calling themselves by that uh, ecclesiological title. Um, so, so that's my point is that often the Bible will speak um, about a general characteristic in terms of its normal manifestation without negating the reality that there are still diverse ways in which that characteristic can be manifest. Right. So... Can a woman be in a position of authority over a man outside of the home or the church? Um, how do we approach the question of a woman even being in a teaching role with men learning underneath her? Right. So, I mean, the obvious answer biblically is that she can because, you know, all the way back to the Mosaic legislation, you know, uh, women could be parts of household that owned um, or uh, employed um, servants. 
And and that could even be, you know, homeborn servants, which are servants who uh, get born into the household by a permanent right of having, you know, their, their ear, ear nailed to the door of the house and a whole ceremony, you name it. But the whole point is, is that they would be at the disposal of that household. And so we've already seen Chloe has people. We don't know if Chloe was married. Um, maybe she, it could be that she was married and she, she's the only believer in that household and, you know, whatever, um, indentured servants they had, you know, shared her faith and they do things at her disposal on account of the church, or it could be that her husband passed or I, I don't know. She, she was a single child who became the, the heir of her, her parents' property or whatever. It could be a ton of different things. But my only point is, is that there are obvious instances in which this is a case. And, um, I mean, other examples would be the position of the queen mother throughout um, Israel's history. Numerous Israelite kings, their mother is named by name and in the capacity of, you know, a chief counselor. It's a bit absurd to suppose that she didn't have um, the authority to, you know, tell any number of servants at the disposal of of the king um, to do different things. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So we encounter this sort of thing really again and again. Um, that some sort of authority is being exercised and that it's perfectly appropriate. Right. Um, kind of along the same vein, can or should women pursue higher education? Should they be so inclined? And if so, what's the wisest approach to determining when and what they should study? Yeah. I think this goes back to recognizing that part of part of the task of, of a woman, in, especially in her, her calling as a mother and, and a wife, is that as a rule, she's probably going to be committed to more multitasking than her, her husband is. Mm-hmm. And again, this just goes back to the usefulness of having one partner and, and, and the wisdom and the calling of one partner providing by and large and protecting by and large and the other party tending to everything else uh, uh, that um, the daily life of a family requires. Mm-hmm. And so when you ask should a woman pursue education, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's perfectly appropriate, but with a view to it and an understanding of there's there being this multitasking reality that likely lies ahead for most women. Um, and, and that out of a very healthy longing to be a mother and mm-hmm. to put to use this um, biological capacity that is unique to the female sex that, um, you know, psychological studies in general will show that this is a really powerful thing in a woman's life. And, and so I think when we're talking about practically young women, women going, you know, I'm going to pursue, um, you know, a, a, a highly technical field in career. One does need to, as, as a wise father and a wise mother say, even if you don't feel this now, you should be prepared for, and you should plan accordingly for the likelihood that this is going to be a very serious aspect of your life at some point. And so does that negate pursuing something with expertise? I don't think so. But there, there is an asterisk that a woman has got to take into that going, and this even just becomes a social reality as well. I mean, I'll, I'll just put this out there. I mean, in general, a woman who is highly educated, to be honest, Jordan Peterson's really adept at expounding these sorts of things because he's looked at it in much greater depth than I. Mm-hmm. But, but it's very rare that a woman who's highly educated is going to be less educated than the man she's attracted to and wants to marry. And so there's that element of like the field of of people that you are looking to marry in your pursuits of, you know, higher education, it becomes more narrow for you by your own vetting process 
and by your own inclination. And these are, they're just social realities that one has to take into this. And so I would say in general, it's going to be much harder for a woman to pursue a highly specified technical field of, of study and expertise and, um, uh, respond to and, um, uh, let me say, responsibly manage her own sense of calling, which often manifests itself in the course of time to be a mom and to be a wife. And I'll just say it's, it's often tragic when a woman has attempted to either say, I can have my cake and eat it too, mm-hmm. and um, I'll be a career woman to the, with the same vehemence and vigor as my husband, and, and I'll be a mom. Um, how, how can you actually do that with the same vehemence and vigor as your husband and also be a mom? Um, when he doesn't have to be a person carrying a baby for nine months, feeding a baby for another, again, nine months to a year to, you know, however long that continues. And even then, you know, have the motherly instinct to, um, to, to be present as a nurturer for your children in their youngest years. Those, those are the sorts of things that I think have to clearly be presented to our young women. Mm-hmm. And I would just note it's not impossible that in that context, you still have a woman who, um, you know, pursues education in a certain direction, is really gifted and, and, and really good at it, m- meets a husband in the course of that, or even very near the beginning of that, who is, you know, uh, go, going, you know, that route with her or similar to her. But I would mm-hmm. just know it's, it is a more rare calling. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say, even on the front end, you know, sometimes people get worried with the idea that there's any exception, you know, that some women might pursue expertise with, you know, uh, just an abnormal sense of calling. I'll just note to even present the warning that I'm presenting would be a healthy alteration to the culture at large. Because the the fact is, is the opposite is occurring. Mm -hmm. Women are being told you you are not being all that you can be unless you essentially suppress that desire. Um, Unless you um, recognize that, if you, unless you fight the fight with the rest of us because society's keeping you down and right. keeping us from pursuing these things, and honestly, it just I think it produces a generation of young ladies who are just bound to be miserable. Yeah, because that particular pursuit that's being described is is not the normal calling of most women. So mm-hmm. they feel like a failure if they haven't you know pursued this sort of expertise and angry at the world, you know, it's somebody else's fault. They're pr- prone to shifting blame, mm-hmm. mad at their parents for not manifesting, you know, more, you know, uh, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial womanhood, you know, in the part of their own right. mom. And it just, it just, it just eats up mm-hmm. all of these meaningful relationships in life that, that are supposed to help you guide this ship of your own life. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, I just, I think the robust, um, realism and warning, uh, is in order along with um, the acknowledgement that there's still much value in, in women learning in, 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 you know, in a variety of capacities and ways. And, and I'll just expound on that a little bit. I mean, you know, in the ancient world, if you're a woman who um, was impoverished and frankly, for whatever reason, could not get married, your work opportunities were pretty limited. The fact is you probably would be in the capacity of a servant. Um, that's what you would end up as. But even then, the idea that you'd have a skill set that was marketable still utterly valuable. I mean, you you might find yourself only you know um, helping with with children, but you could find yourself doing any number of tasks in a house, and especially a wealthy household. Um, 
that would require some level of skill and expertise. And so my point is, is that when we're looking at the world in which we're, we're currently in, you know, listen, no, I don't think Christian households should be, you know, pressuring our young women that they, they need to be PhDs in, you know, fields or they're a failure. But there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with um, communicating. There's a valuable value in having marketable skills that can come alongside and facilitate and, yeah. You know, you could be single for, for a season of life and that, you know, yeah, right. that's valuable. I'm I'm curious, since we have a new justice, uh, Amy. Yeah. Uh, ACB, has, yeah. as she is now known, um, do you think she helps or hurts the cause that you just yeah. stated? Yeah. And how should we look at, look at her maybe perhaps in light of what you just said. Sure. Well, see, I think, you know, one of the, one of the challenges with answering that question well is that um, the way that people want to answer that question and the way they want to measure a good answer to that question is by what you and I can all see. Right. And see, this is kind of the problem. You know, the world has fallen hook, line, and sinker for believing that what we see, what history records, and what, um, again, what, what mere human sight can evaluate uh, that that is the criterion for what is is really valuable and who lived a good life, who lived a meaningful life, who lived a, mm-hmm. a successful life, all of those things. When, you know, the Bible tells us very specifically to not look at what can be seen. And so part of my answer would have to be me knowing Amy Comey Bar- Coney Barrett and, and her actual home life right. and the state of her, her household and her children. And I know the reports are all that it's 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 wonderful and it's quite good. And I'm inclined to believe them. Yeah. In general. But I also know that we live in a world that like puts people on reality TV shows because allegedly they're such amazing parents. And then you find out a year later that they, you know, got divorced and it, the whole thing mm-hmm. was just right. a sham and it was a living hell or things like that. Um, so I'm inclined to say, based on, you know, what I've, the, the, the meager acquaintance that I have with what's go- going on in her household, that, um, that they have children who are obedient and well-behaved and, you know, have, you know, something of a handle on life. I mean, yeah, you know, I say all that, you know, as I understand, she's a Roman Catholic and all of these things, you know, and trying to factor in what that means for me as a, you know, a man who has great Protestant conviction. Um, but all that. Agent of the Antichrist. Exactly right. No, no, exactly. Yes, I'm definitely. Definitely would be easier under than that. But my only point is. <laughs> In the covenanter groups. Yeah. <laughs> They're all whizzed up. All right. Yeah. But my point is, is that it would really require a sort of acquaintance with her household. And, right. But my, my point is that in theory, I don't, I don't think it's impossible that you could have a woman who has, you know, such a legal brilliance and excellence mm-hmm. that. Um, she's she's capable of of being in the capacity of a Supreme Court judge and um, also capable of being a a, a an altogether present mother and um, uh, nurturer for her household and very importantly someone who comes alongside of her husband and can meaningfully say you're the head of this household mm-hmm. your leadership of this household is of primary importance to my sense of calling in my life, and frankly, insofar as this calling as a Supreme Court judge uh, collided with that, I understand that my calling here is primary. And that might mean that I have to 
um, say goodbye to the bench and say goodbye to that career. Mm-hmm. And maybe even sooner than later, maybe even before it becomes total chaos in this household. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as for in general, whether those two things can be done at the same time, I think, you know, we look at, you know, just past Supreme Courts uh, and, and we, we find the answer. We have Justice Ginsburg. Mm-hmm. Justice Ginsburg didn't have that same burden that Amy Coney Barrett has. Mm-hmm. And um, as I understand, the same is true of uh, Justice Keegan. Um, I don't think she's married to anyone or has any adopted children. Um, and so my only point is, you look at those two paths and those two callings, and they 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 really had to be pursued for practical purposes, um, it would seem, without that added burden and that added stress. And so, you know, I, I, I put that out there as um, indicative of the fact that she would most, she would, she would be the exception that proves the rule that this is a very exceptional sort of calling right. yeah. for a woman to have. I, that's what I was just going to ask is like, should, is, is, uh, Amy, uh, Coney Barrett, is she like the standard, like, mm-hmm. oh man, she hits the religion. She's has all the kids she's even adopted right. and she has a career. Like that's like mm-hmm. the epitome of what being a Christian woman is, or right. is it really, well, she's kind of the exception totally. to the rule. Well, and that's how should we see her? People want you to answer that by evaluating yeah. like how the fruit of their parenting right now. And, it, and it's one of those things where you go, how, how can you do that right now? I mean, that's a really difficult thing mm-hmm. to do. And I feel like when you beat that drum too intensely, that this is the, this is the example of, you know, the woman who's done it right. all, you could be setting yourself up for a great failure when, you know, you see everything fall apart. Right. And, um, that's why I just, you know, I'd say in general, it's like to have such an intense calling um, for a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at Amy Coney Barrett and say, I would be far less reluctant to simply praise, you know, her 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 position in life and all that she's doing. You know, if she had, um, she she was an empty nester right now, mm-hmm. and all of her children were out of the home. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, that 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 would even be a, a different sort of a thing. Sure. Um. You know, I will, I'll say a few things, you know, when it comes to, to the calling of a Supreme Court justice, I don't want to diminish in the least how weighty uh, the decision-making is that they're doing. Obviously, you know, an entire nation is affected by it. You know, abortion yeah. policy is affected by it. Yeah. Uh, you know, money and politics is affected by it. These are mm-hmm. extremely weighty decisions. Um, but I will say this. The calling of a Supreme Court justice is also not even the same as the calling of, say, a president. A Supreme Court justice isn't, in general, going to have a, you know, horrible phone call dropped on them, you know, where that moment they have to make a decision that, you know, are we going to war? Are we, you know, are we going to preemptively, or are we going to respond with military force? They don't, that isn't the nature of the calling of a Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. It's, they're going to go home at the end of the night, having to weigh weighty arguments about a case and they're going to, to have to deliberate over that for you know a long period of time. I would just say there are things about that that are, that are more uh, conducive to the calling of um, a woman in a home than, again, the sort of calling of um, a commander in chief mm-hmm. and the sort of you know reaction time mm-hmm. that they're going to have to constantly be engaging into things that is more becoming of you know her office and you know in 
being at home. Did you guys know what she was doing before um, she got tapped to be a Supreme Court justice? Like, was she currently operating in the capacity of a judge? I'm just curious. I I believe so. I but be- I would yeah. have to do some more research before I answer that definitively. Yeah, I I don't I don't know either. I mean, I, again, without diminishing that, you know, it's it's has great pressure, the calling that, that she's under, you know, so mm-hmm. there's that sort of burden. Um, I do think it's significant that it's not the sort of thing that requires the sort of reaction time mm-hmm. that other, you know, official capacities, even, even a police officer might have. Right. Um, but yeah. It, I feel like some of the answers that she was asked to give, they had to qualify with, we know you can only disclose so much in your answer because of the position that you currently hold. Right. Yeah. It, so they I do refer to her as honorable, which yeah. I think is a judge um, title. Yeah. And, and I'm curious too. Um, so there are some people in Christian circle on my little Facebook group that I'm involved in um, said, uh, I was actually quite divided. It was really interesting to read, but so there were some people that said, no, absolutely not. She should not exercise any kind of authority over any man. Mm-hmm. And she, basically like her husband is leading her. And then there were other people that were likening her to the, uh, to Deborah, the judge in the old Testament. Sure. So do you think that that is a adequate or satisfactory example? Yeah. Um, uh, like comparison, well, I do, but I would just note, you know, the whole the whole book of Judges is about unlikely heroes. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what the book is about. And I think to to not notice that and to not bring that to bear, because I mean, because the question you raised earlier, again, is this what we should prop forth as the this mm-hmm. is the ideal or something? Right. The whole point of the book of Judges, you look at all of the judges, they're actually the ones that we, insofar as we know anything about them, they're all kind of weirdos that <laughs> somehow end up... You know, and it, it, well, there's a rhetorical message to it that, yeah. you know, the Lord is using unlikely means to deliver his people to let you know that he's delivering them mm-hmm. and that it's not the mere ingenuity and skill of man in these. And, and it's almost always that it's undeserved. It's like, where did this guy come from in, in a nation that's otherwise worshiping other gods and you name mm-hmm. it? So whatever it might be, whether it's reducing, you know, Gideon's army down to, you know, just the 300 and then you know, especially those who pant and lack physical strength, or whether it's Jephthah, who's an outcast, who mm-hmm. for some reason the people call upon him, seize upon him. Um, that kind of is the picture of the time. But I would note a few things about Deborah that's really important. I, it's not an ancillary detail that it says Deborah, the wife of, of Lapidus, that that is, they let you know she is a married woman mm-hmm. and that she is, uh, she's, She's actually not neglecting, you know, what would be a normal calling to be within the boundaries of marriage, Mm -hmm. that her husband is known. Mm -hmm. He's not a no name. And, you know, when you talk about the wife of noble character and, you know, it's this, um, it says that her husband is, uh, you know, Proverbs 31, that her husband is an elder at the gates. I mean, the the idea being that her nobility um, necessarily leads to not her husband being, you know, essentially a nobody, but a man who's well-respected. That's implicit in that description. And the other thing that we know about, of course, Deborah is that she's a prophetically gifted woman. Yeah. Um, and that, that again, I mean, this, this is an area of grave confusion when people start talking about biblical office and right. um, the calling of prophet. Um, the calling of biblical prophets uh, shouldn't be taken to inform us at all. I mean, who should uh, bear uh, official offices in the church? Um, 
the whole concept of a prophet is that the Lord himself is, is speaking. That person's words are the Lord's words. And that those the, that sort of speech can come from anyone and even the most likely sources, it, sometimes in, it, to let you know that it's God and, and, and not mere man. So for example, in the Bible, you know, children prophesy, you know, a young Samuel prophesies that tells us nothing at all about whom the office of pastor should be open to. I mean, what a ludicrous conclusion. I mean, donkeys. I was just going to say, I'm pretty sure there was a donkey in there somewhere. That's right. They speak (laughs) things that men don't. And and the whole point again is that this is not meant to define for us, you know, who should have a biblical office. Again, unbelievers like Balaam prophesy. This isn't supposed to inform us about biblical office in the church. But my point, my point going back to, to Deborah with respect to, you know, exercising, you know, ju- uh, judicial um, decisions. Um, yeah, it would appear that she's prophetically gifted. Mm-hmm. She is a, a, in that, in that respect, also a woman who um, manifests wisdom and judgment. And it says that Israel comes to her um, it, it's important that it says that it, 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 she evidently is not on a judging circuit like Samuel was. Mm. And yeah. this again speaks to, um, a difference in calling that, um, that pervades the entire Bible, to be honest, that, um, again, yes, she is something of an unlikely hero. She is exceptional mm. in, in, in these respects. She is a woman married to a husband who is of, um, who is, who isn't simply a no name, mm-hmm. and um, and 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 so when you, you put those qualifications on it, yeah, we we could we could notice similarity, but then again, the similarity would be that these are two women with exceptional callings. I I almost hate using that word exceptional because I'm using it in a way that emphasizes Outs- exception, right outside the norm. Unfortunately, I think right. what the world hears and what our young women are being trained to hear is that she has a um, she has a really good, great, glamorous, uh-huh. right. uh, ideal, awesome, awesome yes. calling, uh-huh. extra special, extra special right. and, and and that that makes her somehow you know better than everyone else, and that that renders you know the right. calling of of most women, or for, heck, for, for crying out loud, most men, yeah, you know, unexceptional and <laughs> yeah. and un um in in that sense of, of meaning great and 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 valuable, mm-hmm. and and that's that's just a real problem to say the least. It's it's the problem that a culture suffers from that doesn't believe what Jesus said when he said that he did not come to be served but to serve and 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 props that calling up as most glorious. But yeah. go ahead. Yeah, this all kind of segues into uh the next question too cuz Deborah's used as an ex- as a biblical example for women in combat or um civil government, civil government or military or other other forms of, of yeah. um a combative type role so where right. um do you think that women could hold positions and if so like what capacity are they just absolutely unable to or right. well I mean, I think the I first like thing to degrees. note about yeah. Deborah, I mean, it, it's, it would be a bit baffling for someone to point that out as, you know, somehow validating women in combat when the whole point of the story is that she's a rather exceptional judge in that, unlike all the other judges who are military deliverers of Israel, this judge is not a military deliverer. Mm-hmm. Quite to the contrary, that's, that's Barack's responsibility. Right. His weakness in doing so is to his shame 
That's not, you know, a mark of, and the fact that he won't do so without, you know, her presence and blessing, it doesn't make her a combatant, but it does indicate that, you know, part of the reason we're in this situation is that Israel is a, a people that um, is, um, is, is not being led by, um, by, the, by the men who are supposed to, especially in combat. Um, I'd say that's a pretty, pretty hard line in the sand, you know, biblically that the combatants in wars, the official combatants um, mm-hmm. are supposed to be men. And that, you know, going back to Adam in the garden, it was his role specifically as a guardian and combatant um, that was being neglected and that, that led to, you know, the fall of mankind. Um, so, so what do we have? We have that reaffirmed in, in judges. I mean, she, she doesn't go out and, you know, right. put on, and, and notably the woman who does eventually kill the villain in the story right. only does so when she's, he's like invaded he, her yeah. tent. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this again is not a woman going out preemptively. Right. And of course the Bible, obviously uh, the basic right of self-defense extends to every human being. And right. you know, when there's a foreign uh, right. military warlord who's entered your tent, the idea that he would be pegged through the school <laughs> as she, he is by JL uh-huh. shouldn't be surprising at that point. And again, it's hardly a, a solid proof text for women combatants and cladding mm-hmm. themselves with uh, military garb to go out and, and to fight. And I think, you know, one of the seminal passages that speaks against that is the Deuteronomic prohibition that a woman is not to wear a man's clothing. If there's anything that that refers to, the distinctive clothing that would be worn by by a man as opposed to a, to a woman would would certainly be, um, you know, any sort of you know military cladding, um, and so yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think that that passage speaks rather directly to um, mm-hmm. to the issue of, of uh, women combatants. Mm-hmm. Um, so two more questions. One is a little bit off the beaten path compared to what we have been talking about. But um, we talked in our last episode about a woman's role in the church. Um, but in regards to, you can hear baby noises in the background. Winter's waking up from her nap. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but in regards to a woman engaging in evangelism out in society, um, Beyond the bounds even of personal relationship, let's say a woman actually going out to go and confront um, people in society with the gospel, um, are there differences between a woman's role in evangelism in that really direct, open way and a man's role? I know you were talking about um, how the role of uh, an overseer or an elder is um, combative. And it made me, it reminded me of a conversation you and I had about this very thing. Um, so I thought I would ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's a great question because no one disputes that there is a general call. I mean, that's what the theologians call it, a general call that belongs to all Christians as we are, you know, a priesthood of all believers to, um, bear robust witness to Christ. Um, so, I mean, even when, when Jesus is sending out the 10 in Matthew 10, um, you know, he's instructing them for the combat that lies ahead. He's instructing them about how they're, they're going to be reacted to uh, negatively and with hatred and violence and being, you know, brought before courts and kings and you name it. But, but in the course of that, Jesus speaks a general calling to everyone 
He just says, he who, I mean, this is a he whoever, you know, a whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And um, again, he's going to say, you know, whoever does not confess me before men, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father. So I, I want to affirm the general calling that we all have. We all have a calling to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And that's something that we, we've got to stick by. Um, now, when we talk about the intentional going out into a society to share the gospel, I mean, there, there are gradations there that we, I think, have to distinct, distinguish. Are we talking about going out and giving someone a track? Um, that is, is something that does not strike me as particularly out of accord or uniquely combative necessarily on the part of a woman um, that either A, uh, conflicts with the calling that she has from 1 Peter uh, chapter 3 to uh, let her witness be married to a gentle spirit and all of these things. And in that respect, I don't think that you're outside of the boundaries of the general calling of a woman um, or the general calling of a Christian. Um, that that could birth... Um, some apologetic discussion and question and answer, also not particularly surprising. But I do think that when it comes to pressuring, you know, the, let me just put it this way, really putting the pressure on and, you know, really in, engaging in the knockdown sort of a debate with a man, I do think that we're approaching something more like an evangelist at that point. And Again, given that this biblical calling of elder, pastor, which again is, is a, a, even a general term that the apostles themselves embrace for themselves, as you're approaching or veering into that realm, um, I think you're making, rendering things both confusing for the people that you're talking to and potentially dangerous for the women involved themselves. Because yeah, th there is a great spiritual weight of battle uh, that, that one is taking on at that point. And um, there's even an interpersonal and emotional element of that battle that one's taking on at that point that um, I would say in general is a dangerous place for a woman to be outside of her, you know, the leadership of um, the ordained clergy and, and, and her husband. And so I, I, those would be my qualifications going into it. And, um, you know, I think if a, if a woman is engaged in that sort of apologetic that really becomes heated and combative. Yeah, there's real wisdom to actually be at that point with with a man of the faith um who can who can take up the the whole, you know, can take up the exchange at that point in your general witnessing, track sharing, question and answering. Um I think that there's great wisdom in that and I I would I would commend that to any woman who's interested in those sorts of things. Right. I've seen this kind of overlap between the church and society there where the lines get a little blurry and either women put themselves in a position to kind of scratch that itch that they have to preach that they're not able to scratch within the church. And they may even believe, well, this isn't the place to do it. So um, they go out and they engage in open air preaching. Yeah. Or I've seen even more commonly um, men put them in that position, even standing right alongside them. Yeah. So I thought it would be worthwhile to bring up because it kind of goes a little bit further than just the general question of can a man learn from a woman or yeah. that sort of thing. Um, well, totally. And, you know, 
what's unfortunate about that is that, <laughs> you know, one might think that they're kind of uh, dotting the I and crossing the T of, of what the word has called us to, to not have ordained, you know, uh, women pastors. Um, and think, you know, I'm honoring that and I'm just, I'm preaching in open air and whoever hears me. But the fact is, is that preaching in the open air is probably the realm where you stand to be more likely to face direct opposition, right. hostile gestures and, and things of that nature that um, then I almost feel like it's like <laughs> when, when we're doing that as a church, the intention is maybe even kind of the intention of the Russian comrade who puts the woman in combat with maybe even with the idea that the enemy will be less likely to um, to be aggressive, and you know that essentially the, what you're attempting to do is um, you're thinking that you're circumventing the the viciousness of the world, when in fact, um, well, to go back to Amy Coney Barrett, the world is going to be ju- just as vicious to you if you're not embracing their version of feminism you're not embracing their version of womanhood and yeah it's it's the bottom line is it's really crushing and i i just put that out there because i think you know one of the realms of dispute very often now is you know whether we ought to have um you know women deacons you know in the church and again i just i think this question is often approached with such naivety about the office and you know the presumption we're talking about leading in service and helping people I'll just tell you, you know, you know, in, in our ecclesiology in the PCA, you know, our book of church order says that when you don't have um, elders, the responsibility of the elders, you know, devolve upon the teaching minister. You don't have deacons. Well, the responsibilities of the deacons devolve upon, you know, the elders and if not the elders. Right. The so there was a time when I was the teaching elder, the ruling elder and the deacon of Trinitas Church, not by choice, but by being a church planter. I will tell you, I have had multiple highly aggressive exchanges with people who were um, in need, uh, received some sort of um, service from the church only in the next week to approach me with an aggressive stance to the effect that church needs to be paying their electric bill, that we need to be doing more, that we're hard-hearted, that we're cold, that, and, you know, by a, you know, a six foot tall man who is, um, not taking no for an answer. Um, that's not an appropriate place for the men of the church to be placing their sisters. Right. And, you know, again, I just, I, I think, you know, looking at, you know, the old Testament, um, you know, precedent of, you know, you had female temple, um, uh, attendance. I mean, it's where we get the concept of a deacon assistant, you know, they, they would assist in these, these actions and that's perfectly appropriate. But as to who is bearing the brunt of responsibility, answering for that ministry and why we are doing and maybe not doing what some apparently needy people are asking for, that's where I go. I mean, that sort of question. And I'll just tell you, you know, for me personally, as a pastor who loves my congregants, loves the stranger who comes into the church and wants to see them served, um, you know, with the rich sort of Christian service that Jesus paved the way for, yeah, it's really, really crushing when someone tells you that you have, um, you're not, you're not being Christ-like, you're not following, you know, the path and the call. And listen, you know, Christians in general are going to receive, you know, those sorts of, you know, crushing gestures from people. But here's the thing, 
to bear an office where, or even to put yourself in the position of a, a street preacher, you name it, where you are taking crushing verbal blows mm-hmm. on a regular basis, um, that's the sort of a thing that I, I don't count it loving at all for for men in the church to um, open that door for women because either it's it's something that um, they've asked for or that they want because the fact is, is that saying yes is not always a loving gesture. And that's the unfortunate thing. You know, I, let me, I'll just relate it this way. You know, I've had the conversation about women pastors so many times and I've so many times heard that conversation uh, in spite of all of the biblical <laughs> passages and precedents and grounds for not having ordained women clergy. I've heard people attempt to answer or to solve the dispute on the grounds that love conquers all. And somehow the conclusion is, the inference is that that love toward women in the church would probably mean giving them or allowing them to do whatever they feel like. And if they feel inclined to an office or they feel as if they're called to an office, the loving thing to do would be to simply have them do that. I mean, it's the same rationale that we see all across our culture now. You know, the loving thing to do to the person who, you know, feels... Uh, gender dysphoria would be to affirm them in changing their gender or the whatever it may be. And there's just simply no biblical precedent for the idea that the loving thing to do is always or even most often to let people do what they want, especially for people who affirm a robust doctrine of human depravity, (laughs) that we have all sorts of wants that are not healthy. Um, competing with one another for our, our, our attention mm-hmm. and, and for our submission. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's just a concerning mentality at the end of the day. So yeah, I would be inclined, you know, as a pastor, obviously who has, um, you know, we've as a church gone out and done, uh, sharing the gospel, you know, we first off tend to go two by two in general, but, um, as well, um, tend to pair off with, um, you know, uh, men and women together insofar as women are involved in that. And we've been happy to have them involved in that. Obviously, Ash, you've been involved in that. And um, we were blessed to have you. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, the person who's taking the hits from an aggressive world, um, the forefront of that needs to be the men of the church. Yeah, so. that's so good. Thank you. Um, so I think to wrap up, the question that I'd like to ask is, um, kind of going the opposite direction. We've talked about um, issues that might touch women who are pursuing a higher education or who are in the workforce and might have doubts about the appropriateness of that or who are even in roles of civil government. Um, So let's go the opposite direction and say, um, what about the woman who is just, and I say just, I shouldn't say just, but is not pursuing higher education, is not working outside of the home, is at home with her children, day in and day out, changing diapers, <laughs> putting her yeah. hand to the plow in that way. Can we um, just wrap this up a little bit, talking about just how that basic service in the family and in the church does impact society in regards to advancing Christ's kingdom um, in the Great Commission? Absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing. It's, it's a, a mighty and indispensable service. To, to run a household, um, and to to keep things moving and keep things working there, you know, it 
it is the microcosm of the world that the, your children see. It is the world as your children know it. And, um, you know, the unique place that, um, that a wife is in, in a household, there is a unique, there's a unique overlap with the, the work and the labor of Christ. This is literally, we're smacked in the face with this concept in, you know, first Corinthians 11, where in the, you know, opening verses of that chapter, you know, it talks about, um, the head of Christ being God, the father. And then of course, Christ being the head of the church and everyone within it, the men and the women of it. And then of course, the head of a woman being her husband. Now you look at Christ in that capacity. Clearly being the head of someone doesn't mean being the ontological superior because the son, father and the son are fully God. They're both the great I am and they both bear that name. They're self-existent. They're one being in essence together. Um, Jesus is in this unique position where he is constantly coming and saying, I'm not gonna do anything but what my father tells me to. So he's submitting to the will of the father that's part of his role as savior. And at the same time, he's leading his church. He's the leader of this, this uh, body of Christ on earth. He's the head of it. And he's doing these two things at once all the time. When you think about the role of a woman in the household, it is that impossible role that Christ fulfills of at the same time being one with the head of the household, the leader, and hence being the leader of the children. And in another respect, being the first to submit and the first to respond and the first to follow. And in so doing, being the example for your children. That is the amazing task of a woman in a healthy running household, that she is this leader who shows you how to honor and to love leadership that is not always easy to follow as you know, no husband's perfect and we're all sinners and we just also just make mistakes, all of those things. That is an amazing and impossible calling. I mean, and I don't say that in the sense that um, it's literally impossible, but you can see how stretched one is at once mm -hmm. to be both of those things, you know, f for your children. But this is the, the the wild thing about it is that, you know, I will often tell, tell um, women in premarital counseling that, your children will never honor your husband more than you do. It's just not gonna happen. Like when you consider how your daughters are going to react to their dad's leadership in those fairly universally hard, harder years of you know adolescence to teen to young adulthood, you are the gold standard for how they will do that. You're the gold standard. The tones of voice that you have, the, the um, the gestures, whether you just are, you know, you lose focus the minute your husband starts saying something you don't want to hear. I'm just saying that task right there, while, you know, again, working hard and laboring hard in all of the matters that require your attention as, as a wife is profound and amazing and intense. And, but, but, and it's not just, I'm not just talking about those teen years. I'm, I'm talking about the whole existence of your children and their capacity to honor authority. And when they disagree with it and when they have to offer words of wisdom that, you know, are contrary to decisions that are not biblical or for whatever reason, not wise. And, you know, wife of noble character has a calling to be wise and to be a voice of wisdom that your kids become citizens and 
church members and spouses who can do that. Because who's calling in life doesn't require that? Like what young person doesn't have a boss in a job who's kind of a jerk with labor that they don't particularly love? How is that not the basic calling of everybody's first job ever? And again, a, a mother who can do that with this sense of like, A, this is a light and momentary affliction. Affliction On the other side of this calling is A, relief both in this life and the life to come and joy of, you know, again, seeing my kids flourish and being, you know, a, a grandmother someday and having the joys of these kids without you know, having to be uh, in the game directly and immediately in the same way that I was when I was a mom. I'm just saying, and then beyond that, that um, that our calling is, of course, eternal and that, you know, not one of us knows what we will be. I mean, that's what it says in First John 3, 2. We don't really know what our vocation is going to be for eternity, what place we're going to play in this glorified, resurrected body forevermore. And I just think this perspective, A, it just doesn't exist. I mean, all of this pursuit of being all you can be in this life to the exclusion of these, um, what you what get passed off as mundane tasks and, and this daily calling, it, it's all birthed out of a lack of reference to eternity. Right. And so I, you know, I, I, I often like to put it this way. You know, the fact is, is, you know, you want to think about what your job is. Um, everybody in the world loves the idea of, you know, we glorify the idea of being an actor. Like, you know, you ha- you know, you're Hollywood, all that, the glam, you name it. I'll tell you what, every single one of us, if we want to live the aesthetic Christian worldview that we are to live, we all have a job to be a supportive actor and actress. Your job as a man is to be a walking, breathing image of Christ in how you relate to your family and all of the ingloriousness of Christ's calling as he laid his life down for his church, as he died daily for her. Your calling as a woman is to be the supportive actress to a bride, a church that despite um, you know, being, being born in sin is sanctified in Christ with a newfound ability to honor her, her cosmic Lord, her husband, her... Mm-hmm you know, uh, the head of the church with um, total fidelity to him so that he, you know, he returns to a bride without spot. If we all looked at our lives very honestly as that's our calling, our calling is to be that, you know, in all of our capacities of life and that what we're doing is we're shining back onto our savior, the glory of who he is and shining back onto the bride and the church, the glory of who she is in Christ. Um, that's what we are. We are meant to be living, walking, breathing symbols in that drama for, you know, for for this real point of human history. Mm-hmm. Um, then we'd be getting it right. Then we'd be able to see our tasks for the glorious things that they are. And we would understand that um, that story, that drama is not over. And we shouldn't be surprised that we haven't you know, experience the sort of, of glory that an actor does yet, because they don't either on the set. I mean, they get that after the movie's out and everybody says, well, well, well done. You know, that mm-hmm. was great. But I just think the fact is we think of ourselves as something less than um, uh, characters in that play with that distinct calling and that aesthetic calling 
to accentuate the beauty of the two main characters. And, uh, you know, that that's the whole problem with with the world we live in today is that we we don't have sight of a world to come. And that forces you into the task of being an existentialist who says, how can I make this life right here and now? The one show, the one chance, the one shot that I have, this utterly unique, exceptional, glorious thing. And that just simply is not the calling of a Christian, man or woman. So... Yeah, thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us um, for this episode. We have appreciated everything you've said. Um, next, on our next episode, we will be talking about a woman's character, um, the specific character qualities that God calls us to cultivate in scripture and to avoid, and how that plays into the roles that he's called us to specifically as women. Um, Kristen's holding my baby. So until next time, go love your God, love your husband, and love your kids.